So, world famous engineer, Jeff Brown. If you could describe our little dinner together in one word, what would it be? Coyotes. <laughs> Definitely coyotes. <laughs> Moving on. <laughs> and now for Dinner with Racers, presented by Continental Tire. With your hosts, Ryan Eversley and Sean Heckman. Placeholder Radio. Once again, Dinner with Racers. I am Sean Heckman. I am Ryan Eversley. If you don't know who we are, all good. Um, Find out next. We are somewhere between Florida and Atlanta as we sort of record these wrap-outs. Continental time. It is October 31st, 2015. We have been traveling the country uh, in Ryan's Acura. My Acura MDX. And uh, what are the tires? Continental tires. Continental tires. Anyway, we've been meeting up with a handful of people in racing that we thought were cool. We invited them to dinner. This is the result. We didn't have an agenda. We didn't have a structure. A lot of them we didn't even know. But seemed like a good idea at the time. So 8,000 miles and 30 days later in how many states? Uh, 20 states. 20 states brought 27 <sighs> meals to present to you, the audience. A free podcast. Yeah. Presented so. by Continental Tires. So next up. Jeff Brown. Now, Jeff Brown may not be a household name to sort of people outside the sport, but this dude has been an engineer He's in the the sport man. for 30 years. He is the man. Years. Um, how much were we interested in meeting up with him? We drove all the way to Ovalo, Texas. Which is in the middle of nowhere. Literally, we went out of our way to go to nowhere. We got lost. It took us four hours to get to the city of Ovalo, and then another 90 minutes to go from the city of Ovalo to Jeff's house. Why? Hey. We got lost. We got lost. <laughs> <laughs> because our GPS had no idea what the hell was going on. So anyway, uh, but but Jeff brought us into his sort of compound, if you will. His house is unlike anything we've ever seen. It's not even a house. It's a race shop. that kind of had a house built into it. Uh, and his wife, Diane, made us steaks, which were lovely. Yeah, and Brussels sprouts and apple pie a la mode. It was fantastic. What did you have, Sean? Uh, I, had, uh, I did have the Brussels sprouts. Yeah, that's actually. right. And I had a chicken sandwich. Oh. Uh, but this kicked off the first of our home-cooked meals. That's right. This is uh, the beginning of the chase to lock in for the best cooked meal we got the whole trip. So it was between Jeff and Diane Brown. Bill Riley. Bill Riley and Jordan Ricky Taylor. That's right. So you'll have to listen to all of them to know who cooks a better uh, better steak. But anyway, quick little rundown on Jeff Brown. Been an engineer for 30 years, worked on a ton of different sports. Continental He, he actually started his career with uh, Alan Kowicki, believe it or not, uh, engineering and sort of uh, Kowicki's early stock car days. Moved over to sports car racing, uh, notable things. He ran on the uh, Ferrari 333 SP program with uh, Andy Evans. Uh, did some IndyCar stuff, uh, but most recently he's been known for uh, kind of heading up the Level 5 program, uh, and now most recently with uh, Speed Source and their Mazda LMP program. So, experienced dude, super interesting. One thing you are not gonna hear is a lot of stories about Level 5. Why? Because those stories are so amazing, we had to turn them into another episode. Yeah, you're going to want to download that one immediately after hearing this one because they are just phenomenal. And Continental Tire. On that note. Continental Tire. Off to Jeff Brown. Continental Tire. Meow. All right, we're going to start in five, four, three, two. Yeah, just put it on and talk. Yeah, we can and talk a little bit now. No, no, none of that. <laughs> <laughs> that's pretty
that. It's basically just always hot. So okay, cool. Yeah. Oh, it's like our intercom. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Perfect. So, I actually kind of feel like we failed you um, because this is this whole thing is dinner with like the. I mean, I know we're paying you handsomely <laughs> for for this interview. Right. Um, but one of the the perks was always supposed to be that we would bring you dinner or take you to dinner, and and now we're not even doing that because Diane's just sitting here making it for us. But you, with the road trip you guys got, you should just enjoy it. Oh no, we're enjoying it. <laughs> I, I was thinking. Don't that worry earlier. about it. Yeah. I was thinking that I'm like, oh wow, home cooked meal. Like, those aren't <laughs> words we're going to say for a while. Yeah, <laughs> for a long time. Yeah, you know. <laughs> so, so uh, it, I, I, I really think it was one right turn that we missed, and we end up on like I don't know what county we were well, in by so time we called. So did the GPS you. like on your phone? Did it punch in our address? Did it? Show it? It did, but the turn it wanted us to take, it didn't hit up your road that says dead end on the sign. It took us to, like, the last mailbox before you go down that hill there, and then oh. you see all the dead animals on the fence, which yeah. we'll yeah. talk about later. <laughs> um, so it wanted us to turn into what we perceived correctly, now that we know, a driveway that couldn't have been your compound. Yeah. Okay. And it kept saying, no, go right here. And we're like, no, somebody lives there, and this is Texas, and, and we're in a Japanese car. Yeah, and, uh, in the yeah. middle of nowhere. Yeah. Yeah. Like, like you don't drive up someone's driveway. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Right, right, right. yeah. That probably hasn't happened in years. Yeah. So it'd be a yeah. situation. We, yeah. When we first moved here, we had a guy. We we were coming up our driveway, and yeah. we got to the base of the hill that you came up, and there was a pickup truck coming down the hill, and we're like, "Whoa!" You know, we'd been here for like three or four months. We didn't yeah. have a gate down there yet, and we're like, "Whoa, that's weird!" And the guy puts his brakes on, and he rolls down his window and he reaches out and puts his hands up like this. He goes, I'm sorry, I'm on your property. I shouldn't be on your property. I'm just a neighbor. Wanted to, wanted to welcome you to the area or something like that, or whatever he was saying. And he was like, he knew that, you know, this he is, could get shot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, so we, we, I was like, no, I'll just go. And, he's, and Ryan was like, no, we're not doing that. I'm like, I don't want to go down that street. Yeah, yeah. so we, we kept going. And, and so uh, uh, Siri it just went nuts right. and was like, no, go left here. No, no, go, right. Go right. And, and, and yeah, so at a mile and a half later and, and, and cell reception here, like we're on the top of a hill here. So reception's actually good, but you go a hundred yards, any direction and not so much. And so like, we're like, we can't call you. We're, right. we're on a dirt road right. to, to mud. So did you guys eventually end up going back to Ovalo? We, yeah. Oh, we, that's too bad because <laughs> you were pretty close. Yeah. So yeah. you went way back there. Yeah. Had we, we just didn't know. Right. And, because the, the directions you gave us were from Abilene, and right. so uh, you know, so we're coming from Austin. I'm like, it's, I'll just put it in the GPS. I'm right. not going to pay any attention right. to this. And yeah, that was a mistake. Yeah, okay. <laughs> yeah, that was. Uh, I mean, we were starting to think we're like, you know what? If we get stuck, yeah, we don't know how to tell anybody to find us. Yeah, right. And it's, it's, it's again, on a string of dirt roads. We're in so. the middle of nowhere. Yeah, so it's going to be a hike. It's going to be a situation. <laughs> right. Like we're going to be here for a day. Yeah. There, there's you, a you TV know? show like that, right? Lost or something like that. You could be well, on that. Well, our joke was that we saw the picture of the dead animals on the fence, and we were going to mention that to you, and you would say something like, oh, let's go look, and then they wouldn't be there. <laughs> like, wait. <laughs> Whoa. Wait a second. Supernatural. We, we should go ahead and get into the yeah, dead animals so, okay, on the fence. So, okay. so Just past the mailbox of the driveway we did not want to drive up, we right. said, okay, let's keep going because clearly this can't be right. And we've had this a few times today, or on this trip, I should say, where this, the GPS would kind of freak out, and, and it and out of nowhere would say, turn left here, even though 10 seconds ago it said go 40 miles right so we assumed it was that happening yeah so we just start driving straight and uh sure enough there's you know there's so there's these like ryan's like there's an 
animal on the fence. I'm like, whatever. No, they're not. No, we got it. We got it. Let's do some video. So we uh, we pull back, and sure enough, there's a, what I thought was a jackrabbit just sprawled across this, you know, this chain link fence with the, you know, with the, the razors up top. And I'm like, oh, he must have not made the jump. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> and, got stuck. And yeah. then we look, and no, there's one three feet next to it, and then three feet next to that one. And the funny thing was, Sean didn't see the next two yet, so he said, yeah. no, that one must have not made the jump either. And I'm like, dude, there's four of them. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, and the like, whole dynamic the tandem change. jumping, right. Yeah. <laughs> right. So, uh, so yeah, so then you explain, which we'd like to hear your rendition of what that is. So Diane says uh, that they're coyotes, and the coyotes are, they'll eat the farmer's chickens and cows and yeah. whatever they, they have. So apparently they think, and I think uh, I think it's an old wives' tale or a whatever, a Texas tradition or something, that if you hang these dead ones on the fence, that the live ones will come up and see them and go, whoa, that's a scary place. I won't go there anymore. For sure. But Some like 15th century logic. <laughs> right. Yeah, it's pretty bad. And, and so you have to understand that after we saw those, I mean, we got out of the car and like took pictures, got some close-ups with the video camera because we just, I mean, that, you don't see that. Right. Yeah. And then we <clears> got completely lost in the middle of nowhere and we're passing like one bedroom shacks yeah. that has the door wide open yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. for the next hour yeah. right? and no cell reception. Yeah. So that was our entry. That was our like intro to this interview. Okay. Yeah. yeah. That's <laughs> well, yeah. our fear was to be like, well, yeah, we just saw some jackrabbits posted on the fence, and your next reaction would be like, run. Run. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Get out of here. Well, people are like, uh, oh, so you live in rural West Texas. Well, rural is probably, you know, you'd have to define rural. This is like way West Texas. Like, yeah. As you guys saw, you probably paved roads are, you have to drive on gravel roads quite a bit to get here. Yeah. Which we thought was really cool. You know, yeah. it's like nice to kind of get out. The first thing we do is we turn on to State Road 306. Yeah. Uh, right. There's a bunch of them. And we see this, you know, dog-sized boar run, run across, across. Run yeah. across the like, road. Oh, it was a dog. Like, no, that, that was a hog. Like, I, that was yeah, definitely a hog. Right. And so we're like, okay, that's where we are. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the hogs are really bad. We have them up here. They're, sp they're 400, and they're 500 wild. pound. They're wild. They're feral hogs with the big tusks and yeah, everything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they're four or five hundred pounds, and they will—they're destroying the crops and stuff around here. Farmers sure. are sh shooting them. High school kids. Uh, I stopped at a gas station the other day to get some gas on the way back. High school kid says, "Hey, sees my pickup truck. You got a ranch around here?" And I said, "Well, you know, just a little tiny one, hundred acres." And he goes, "You got problems with pigs?" It's like, "Yeah." He goes, well, "Me and my buddy will come out at night and shoot them and haul them off for fifty bucks a head." And so that's what the high school kids do. Instead of mow grass and paint houses here, they <laughs> shoot feral shoot pigs, pigs and haul them off for 50 bucks a head to make money. Ovalo, Texas, ladies and gentlemen. Right. <laughs> <laughs> that's it. So, that, uh, uh, you know, in the, in the raising community, always one of the things that, that you know, if I'm moving or, or Ryan, you just moved uh, from, you know, Decula, Georgia to, to Atlanta. And the, the biggest perk is the fact that it's right next to the airport. Yeah. You know, yeah, and uh, I'm, I'm a freeway away, which in L.A. still means an hour and a half. But, <laughs> yeah. but uh, it takes me 12 minutes to get to the airport, yeah. which is OK on the way there. But on the way home, it's the yeah. best thing ever. Yeah. You know, from the moment I get my bag till I get to my bedroom is going to be a 12 minute jaunt. That's like that's money in the Perfect. bank. Perfect. Yeah. And, and you've been in Raising Jeff for. 20 something years now yeah and you've lived here that whole time yes uh we've been here for 27 almost 28 maybe years 
and so tell me about the travel process. <laughs> so the travel process is you we fly out of Abilene, which is about 45 minutes away from here. Right. So we drive to Abilene. The nice thing about the Abilene Airport is, you know, Ryan talked about being 12 minutes away. Mm -hmm. We can park at the airport 10 minutes. We normally park 10 minutes before boarding. So wow. we're, we're parking 10 minutes before boarding. We walk to the airport. There is virtually no line in security. Yeah. All the security people know us. Yeah. The, their question is... Well, you're there every week, I'm sure. Right. And yeah, so. Their question is, how are you doing in the championship? Did you win last weekend? You know, what right. do you have to do this weekend to lock it up or whatever? So we get on the plane in Abilene, fly to Dallas all the time, yeah. American Eagle, and then go wherever we need to go from there. So every flight is, every trip is four segments. So we're like... <laughs> We're like executive super platinum yeah. on American, yeah. which works out good for first class upgrades because we almost always get the first <laughs> right, class yeah, upgrades. Right, right, <laughs> right. <laughs> so <clears throat> our, the travel thing is crazy, like all racers, but uh, it's just a little bit longer to get, but, uh, yeah, to get going for us. I've always said if I was full-time committed to racing, I would probably not live in Los Angeles because of all the time zone changes and the fact there's usually two legs, three legs to a flight. Right. And that's obviously the case for you and you are full-time in racing but you're you're cool with this it's because the advantages of living here when you're you know a lot of people are like well we're going to go on vacation we're going to go someplace we just come home that's like our vacation because yeah. there's nobody to bother you yeah there's it's relaxing it's calm there's no you know there's th there are times when we'll come home and we won't leave, literally leave the property for seven or ten days. Yeah. Don't have any desire to go anyplace. You know, we're, we see enough people. We have enough meals at restaurants. We have enough of that kind of stuff on the road. We're here. We just like to be at home. Right. Well, and home is a little unique. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's different. <laughs> that's this for is, sure. This is, uh, I mean, I, it, is, it is a home. You do reside here. But th this, is a, this is a small house attached to a garage. Is, is, to a race shop. To a race shop, yeah, basically. Race shop, I yeah. mean, uh, to, to uh, in theory, we'll have a video up that'll show what we've just done. But uh, well, now you have to make that video. Yeah, I know. I've just, just committed so. myself. To right. It. But uh, but we drove in, and our question in terms of where to park was, well, what bay do we park in front of? Right. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So it's a it's a big metal building, as you'll see in the video. That's forty feet wide. <laughs> I committed him now. again. Yeah. Now yeah. he's double committed. Video, right. apparently. You better. <laughs> So it's 40 <laughs> feet wide by 185 feet long. Wow. And in the first 40 by about 35 is our living area, which right. has, you know, your bathroom, bedroom, kitchen, where we're sitting right now. And just to be clear, this is not, when we say you're living your home, this this is not a a home like you're used to seeing. This is a this is like a, any sort of shop in an industrial park in terms right. of the, the structure. It's just four sides and that's that. On the outside, it's a metal building like yeah. you would see, yeah. Like a any kind of any kind of body shop, shop kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You come inside, obviously, and as you guys see, it looks like a house on the inside part. Mm -hmm. It's you know drywall and carpet and just all of that, but it's you know on the outside, it's just a big metal building. And you Diane, you're cool with that. Oh yeah. Yeah. All right. Yeah. That's a keeper. Yeah, you so got to get the right girl. Yeah. She's <laughs> absolutely. She's like. <laughs> She's like, well, I don't want to, you know, well, should we build that house? No. Can we, 
I think we need that other motor in that new chassis. Let's just spend our money on that kind of stuff. <laughs> that's the way she was. Yeah, that's a keeper. That's right. <laughs> the way right. she was all the time. So it's like, can we go? Because when you guys moved here, in what was that, like late 70s? No, it early was 80s? early, was it 88? Yeah, oh, okay. 88. Because this was ne the intention was never that this was going to be the house that you lived in. No, we were going. This was a shop with a place to live in, so that I could do my prep shop stuff right. on in the shop part of it. And then in a few years, we would build the house on the end of the mesa with the great view that we like and everything else. And so we didn't have the money to do that at first, so we built the shop, did that. Then priorities things, right <laughs> yeah. right then things started going good and i started doing race engineering just race engineering not the prep shop thing anymore and we got to the point where we could probably afford to build the house and at that time colin was starting to race carts pretty seriously all over the u.s and in japan and in italy and all over the world and so we had no time to build the house and so then we didn't and then we started racing cars and then about that time, when Colin was 18 and Travis was 17, they both moved away within two weeks of each other. They, Colin went to Charlotte to go race for Roush. Travis went to Indiana to go to college. And then we looked at it and said, well, now there's only two of us. We don't need to build a house. So yeah. the house never got built. <laughs> so to take a step back real quick, before you got into the engineering on the racing side, you moved to Texas to be in the oil industry can right. you talk a little bit about that because i thought that was amazing when you were telling us yeah so <clears throat> i started out racing go-karts when i was seven i think so you had a racing family actually we built a racing family i guess is the way it was so we we were looking for a house my my parents were i was seven years old we went to this one house that the realtor brought us to and i came along and as you do in, on uh, the weekend Milwaukee? in wisconsin yeah yeah and we went to the house, and they opened up the garage, and there was a go-kart in the garage. And I was a seven-year-old kid. Yeah, it's like, whoa, that's, <laughs> like, awesome. How, can I take a ride? No, those can only, the people that own the house said, no, our, our son races that, and those only race on special tracks. It's like, right. ooh, this is even better. Yeah, tell yeah, me more. Absolutely. Tell me more. And my dad was a partner in an insurance agency and had, and, you know, he was a, I think, a typical guy. He liked cool cars and sure. he had a 60 this would have been probably about 64 65 and he had a 64 corvette stingray so he'd liked cool cars but he had nothing to do about racing we went to he went to road america and he watched the car races at road america as a fan yeah and right. that was it and so we saw the go-kart and i was like that's really cool long story short is we ended up buying the house I didn't care about it. I wanted the go-kart to come with it. It didn't come with the house. <laughs> so my dad said, well, let's go out there to the go-kart track in Dousman, which is a pretty famous go-kart track. So we went out there and checked it out. And next thing is we got a go-kart and then I wanted to go racing. So we went out and we practiced one day and I said, okay, cool. Let's, I can race next weekend, right, Dad? And he said, no, your times are way too slow because the weekend we went out before, he was timing all these guys. Your times are too slow. And I said, well, yeah, but, you know, you don't win your first race. He says, well, let's practice some more. So we practiced, we practiced, we practiced, practiced. And it ended up four or five months later, I could beat the time of the fastest guy. We went to our first race, and I won my first race. Nice. So my dad set that hook but really deep. four or deep. five sure. months at that age is torture. Forever. Yeah. This sounds like 
everything we know about you with Colin's career in racing. Yeah. It's a similar backstory. Like, let's do so. some testing. Let's, right. let's do yeah. some tinkering first. So, exactly. yeah, no no surprise there. Yeah. I guess that my dad started that. And, and of course, because of that and because I won my first race, now you're so hooked on it yeah. that, you know, there was no question. And and that wasn't, his idea wasn't to get me hooked on it. His idea was, if you're going to do something right, let's yeah. do it right and succeed at it. Any so big names that you uh, race carts with? Um, I raced carts against Scott Goodyear for oh, four or five years straight. Me and him battled for national championships right. yeah. quite a bit with Scott Goodyear. Um, Scott Pruitt, I never raced against. He was California, but he was at the same time. Same kind of as sure, you hear yeah. his name. Yeah. Um, Scott Pruitt. No, Scott Goodyear, yes. Mark Dismore, raced oh, against Mark yeah, Dismore yeah. quite he a bit. He still races carts, and he's still badass. Yeah, he <laughs> yeah. has the track in Newcastle. Um, in Newcastle yeah. yeah. So Mark Dismore and I were good friends, and and those are probably the two guys that raced against the most. Yeah, yeah so so anyway, so that's the story. That's Wisconsin. Then I raced cars. After I raced go-karts, I raced cars in Canada. You could race in Canada when you were 16. In America, you still had to be 18 to race. So I went to Canada and raced there when I was 16 and 17 with the Triumph Spitfire, the one you guys saw that's sitting in the garage. Yeah. Again. You'll see it on the video yeah. Yeah. that Sean's uh, going to make. Yeah. <laughs> 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 but again, trying to find a way to, to be at the top levels at, at a very young age, it sounds like a family trait. So Right. Going? I yeah. guess, yeah, yeah, you're right. I haven't thought about it that way, but you're right. Yeah. So yeah. went to Canada, raced there. Qualified for the runoffs uh, in Canada, raced the runoffs at, at you know great tracks like Mossport, Montremblant, San Air. Um, those are probably the biggest tracks we raced at. Sure. So anyway, did all of those, raced here a little bit, qualified for the runoffs three or four times. But the runoffs were always when I was at school in college. So I was going to college uh, at the Milwaukee School of Engineering for the sole reason to figure out how to make race cars go faster. I didn't really want to be a traditional engineer designing whatever parts or, or whatever. Parts or whatever. Sure. So, um, so anyway, comes around like you do at college when they have companies come and you interview with, yep. with potential employers. And one company came along that was in the oil business and they explained to me how these, how they um, analyze an oil well. When they drill a hole in the ground, they send these tools down there that have an electronic signal that comes up and they measure all sorts of things like porosity and permeability and they use neutron tools and resistive tools and all this stuff. And it comes up through this wire onto a computer screen in this truck and there's these squiggly lines that you analyze and you figure out whether there's oil there, where it is, what the depth is, how much there might be, and you analyze all this. And they use these super computers again remember this was like 81 and the computers have to be locked up at night because they're national security secrets you know <laughs> we had i remember we had a one gigabyte hard drive in 1981 <laughs> wow but so think about that yeah but yeah. say but that had to be like a whole tower of like reel to reel it, it was an entire room it yeah. was it was as big as a standard like uh dvr wow right now and now that's Poor for a flash drive. Yeah. Right. Yeah. For a flash drive. Right. Yeah. But in that time, we literally had to take them out and lock them in the safes because yeah. it was a national security thing. <laughs> so, 
Something so anyway. that wouldn't even be considered. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. Right. <laughs> so anyway, we. So I took that job because it was data acquisition. I, yeah. I knew data acquisition was coming into race cars, and I had read about it and stuff. But the normal person couldn't have data acquisition right, at right. the time. So I took that job, and that was in Texas. So that's why we ended up in Texas. We got married um, the week before we left for Texas. No, like the – yeah. That's right. We did. Wow. The day and before. Were you a race fan? All right. So she came to the races when when I was in college racing the Spitfire. She yeah. would come, and it would be me, my brother, Diane, my mom, and my dad. Cool. And we would prepare the car and do all the things that you know club racers race. do today. Yeah. Exactly that same kind of thing. Yeah. And then on weekends, she lived in in Milwaukee. She was going to school there and working there. On weekends. I'd take her on a date. We'd go back home, and we'd work on the race car so we could get ready for the next weekend. And yeah, she was, was fine with this. She Tol was cool with that. You're, you're a charming guy. Yeah. yeah. Uh, <laughs> so Diane is what we call a unicorn. Right, um, right. So She's our next interview. Yeah. Right. <laughs> right. How right. do we find that? Right. Uh, wow. Yeah, oh. that's the none of this, you know, you have to have that person. It was always, I mean, like you guys saw, there's a, there's a Porsche door in there that is a crashed Porsche door in a car that Colin was driving, and we spent that's her anniversary for like two years because we spent we spent our money on that kind of stuff. Yeah, and she's like, right. well, what do you want for your anniversary? I'll oh, spend it on you know yeah. if we can get Colin another race in that Porsche, let's do that. Right, right, right. That's what she always wanted to do. So worked out pretty good. Unheard of. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> unheard of. <laughs> Kids, that will never happen. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. This is a once in a lifetime thing we're talking about yep. here. Right. Right. Well, it's cool though because that means the uh, the old Spitfire is like a it's really a family heirloom because that's something you guys were doing together when you were just starting out as a couple. Yep. And here it is, you know, all these years later, exactly. still in the family, still sitting yeah. there. Yeah. That's really cool. Yeah. So that that first oil gig that you had, um, I mean, how do I put this? You weren't even working on your house. You were working on your on your race cars, and and like the house was sort of an afterthought. And and when we were talking before we got on the air, uh, you know, Diane was describing the sort of the ever increasing honeydew list of switches that wouldn't work, but that would be that way for years because all you wanted to do was work on race cars. So, right. did you have a hard time working in a non-racing capacity for those couple of years? Yes, okay. because at that time, my dad was still in Wisconsin. I had moved here. Yeah. And he was missing racing because I wasn't racing. Right. And so a childhood friend of mine that we raced go-karts with, who I basically grew up with at the racetrack, was Alan Kowicki, the NASCAR oh, yeah. champion. So Alan and I grew up together at the go-kart track. And also a guy who just liked to do everything himself. Right. Yeah. So when Alan turned, must have been 18, because you could race the short tracks in Wisconsin when you're 18, and I was probably three years younger than him. My dad gave us 500 bucks to go to a junkyard and buy a Camaro. We bought a 68 Camaro out of a junkyard. Alan and I welded a roll cage in it, and we put a cam in the motor, and I don't even think a fuel cell. Whatever you had to do to make the minimum just thing. Yeah. Just to get the right. thing in. And him and I went short track racing in Wisconsin, and we'd race four or five nights a week with that dirt track car. And then... A few years after that, because I, then I started doing my Spitfire stuff and all of that. Yeah. A few years after that, 
when I moved to Texas with Diane, when we moved here, my dad was kind of missing racing and Alan was wanting to go short track asphalt racing. And he said, okay, I'll start a team. So my dad and Alan started. And so this is late 80s, 90? In 80, uh, 79? Yeah. Oh, no, okay, eight, yeah. no eight, 81, 82. Okay. Yeah. 81, 82 in that area. Okay. So he started the team with Alan and it was ASA, which is yeah. was the American Speed Association. Yeah. It's sort of an equivalent. It would be like K&N now. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And so when they started that team, it was suddenly like weekends off here. We're like, hey, Jeff, why don't you fly up to Wisconsin? We can do, you know, do tires for us or do yeah. this on the team. And, uh, and so I got to stay in the racing thing. Yeah. Eventually, after about 18 months of doing the oil field stuff, um, we decided that we missed it too much. Sure. So we moved back to Wisconsin. Oh, and okay. and basically, I ran the ASA team with Alan. Alan and I ran the team. We had three or four other guys, some fly-in or yeah. drive-in guys at that time, who would come on the weekends, and we ran ASA for two years against like Mark Martin and Dick Trickle and Rusty Wallace and Bob Seneker Gosh. and Mike Eddy yeah. and and Butch Lindley and Sterling Marlin and all of those guys. Yeah. So we'd run. 60 to 70 races a year. So ASA with that yeah, ASA yeah. tire. Go to Florida and do the short track races and the winter tour and all of that. <coughs> and then, it's kind of convoluted, but then, so then we got good enough where we nearly won the championship. We won a bunch of races. It was time to go NASCAR racing. So we rented, we leased a NASCAR car from Joe Rutman, mm -hmm. who was a top NASCAR driver at, yeah, the time. at the time. Right. He had a car of his own. Uh, and we leased that car. We went, Alan and I and Diane and the guys all went to Charlotte for about two months. We built this car. We we're going to try to qualify for the World 600. And Which would now be the Coca-Cola 600. Coca-Cola yeah. yes. 600. Yeah, okay. Long story short is due to some insurance problems with Rutman didn't get the right insurance on the car and all of that, we couldn't, we didn't get a chance to go uh, to mm -hmm. qualify for it. Right. The car was probably would have made it. We wouldn't have been anything stellar, sure. but we, but that would have been Alan's first race. Ended up, we knew we needed to be in Charlotte, so we moved to Charlotte, <laughs> and we started the uh, race team in Charlotte, or brought the race team to Charlotte. Yeah. Alan ended up, um, it w you know, typical money kind of thing. He found a deal to go someplace else. Yeah. We, Alan was a very hard guy to get along with. He was pretty right. um, driven. If you didn't work as hard as him and weren't as committed as him, he didn't want you around. Sure, sure. And so me and him were that way. Right. But no crew guy would. Right. So we couldn't right, keep right. any crew guys. And yeah. he was a tough guy. So anyway, it, it stopped working out on the race team side of sure. things. So Alan went and did his thing. And we were in Charlotte doing a race team. We were like, wow. We'd just rather be in Texas doing, if we're going to do this, let's yeah. go back to what we love because we fell in love with Texas. Yeah. So we moved the whole thing back to Texas. So there's full circle back to here. Nice. So you and uh, Kowicki parted ways. Did you ever go back to working together? Or? No. I, it was kind of weird. So I had started, I'm trying to think of what year this was. I don't remember the year. But anyway, I'd started doing a bunch of shock work bought a shock dyno doing a bunch of shock work became pretty good at it 
That's, that's pepper. Not, yeah, no, that sound. That sound. Just the sound alone is awesome. No, no, keep going. No, the sound is it makes it awesome. It's a uh, Diane. Pepper grinder. That, that's, that's Diane grinding over the uh, potatoes. No, Brussels sprouts. Oh, the Brussels sprouts. Yeah, grinding some pepper on there. That's. They're gonna be good. You should try them. I might try one. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. So I was doing shock stuff and got. Uh, decent enough at shock work where like I was doing even NASCAR stuff for yeah. like Mike Wallace who won the ARCA race at Daytona with on my shocks and did a bunch of NASCAR um, Winston Cup it was at the time yeah. shock work for Junie Donlevy and his NASCAR team and stuff and and Alan was racing NASCAR at the time yeah. Winston Cup and he contacted me and said, hey, I need you to do some shock stuff. Let's get back together and do that. And I said, oh, okay, yeah, that'd be cool. And literally a month later, he died at Bristol in the plane crash. Yeah. yeah. So Had you guys maintained a relationship through that? Mm, not really. Yeah. No, I mean, I knew what he was doing. And we, I mean, we parted ways friends. But one of the interesting things was when we, we I basically kind of fired him from the team because mm. it was either find eight new crew guys or find a new driver because none of the crew guys wanted to work for him anymore because he was just too intense. Sure. Yeah. And, you know, I was tried to explain, look, these people have families and th yeah. they'll work 14 hours a day, but they can't work 20 hours a day. You yeah. can't ask people to do that. Yeah. And he's like, no, no, I work 20 hours a day. They should work at least 19 <laughs> you know, it's like <laughs> he just that's how driven he yeah, was, right. which was a great trait. But in some state, some places, not a great trait. Yeah. I've oftentimes you'll read about guys like Lance Armstrong, for example. He was so willing to go the extra mile to win that he would lie right, right to people's faces. Right. To get what he needed to get out of them. You know what I mean? And a lot of times pe people have read I've read a lot about him and people have said that the intensity that he had to be that successful was also what caused him to be that way. And in this case, it sounds like Alan would push people away because you can't match what I'm trying to do. Exactly. So you're not going to hang out anymore, you know, take, take it or leave it. And that made it tough for him. And I tried to explain, you know, you have to, you can't do it alone. And so he told me, and I thought this was telling when, when I finally went in with the, you know, I went in and had to tell Alan, a guy had grown up with right. that, that we're firing you from this team that we had built together, but it was, you know. It clearly hit ahead, right? Right, and yeah. he was like, okay, yeah, I get it. I understand. I, it, you know, you're right. You're right. I I deserve this and all that. He goes, bah. he goes. the only way to prevent this is I'm just never going to drive for anybody else anymore. I'll just have to figure out how to own my own team. And this was when oh. we were in ASA racing. He yeah. wasn't in NASCAR yet. Yeah. yeah. And I remember listening on the radio or in one of the magazines, racing magazines, when Junior Johnson offered Alan a ride in Junior Johnson's car in the 11, which was the car, the car at that time. Yeah. Yeah, it that had Budweiser, Budweiser sponsorship, car, yeah. and that was the car Junior offered him that ride. That's the best ride. That'd be like it in the 48 car exactly. nowadays. Exactly. You know, offered Alan that ride, and Alan turned it down, and people were like, crazy. "That's you got to yeah. be crazy. And... I knew exactly why he turned it down because he didn't want to drive for anybody else. He started his own team instead and went and went and did it and yeah. did it yeah. and yeah. won yeah. the won championship, championship with yeah. his own team. But he went through crew chiefs like Paul Andrews and and um, uh, I can't remember who else. But he, I mean, he went through 
a lot of those. Ray Everingham was his crew chief for mm. a little while. Paul Andrews, who's a crew chief now still, those guys. It's just hard to work for. Yeah. And and not in a mean way, just because you keep up with me or you're out. Right. Yeah. And I don't think there were many humans on earth that could keep up with him. Yeah. Do you miss NASCAR at all? Uh, a little bit. I mean, it's certainly very competitive. And I've had opportunities along the way. Um, I could have gone to Kyle Petty's deal when Kyle was driving and mm. done a lot of stuff for them. And that was that was potentially pretty interesting and very lucrative at the time. Yeah. But I don't know. That's when Colin was doing go-karts and st or when – no, I guess it wasn't then. I don't know why I didn't take that. Do you remember why I didn't take that job? The Kyle Petty NASCAR thing? I don't remember. It was <laughs> it was a lot of money, <laughs> and I, th I can't remember. It wasn't because it was too much work. It was just, I don't remember. It was, oh, I think I was doing Indy cars at the time, and yeah. I wanted to do the Indy 500. And that was it. Yeah, uh, and Indy cars then. And that was right. the time, that was and Indy car was big pretty. Big deal. Pretty yeah, right. yeah, absolutely. And there were no engineers in NASCAR at the time. Right. Really. And right. so, which is okay. I could have been on the ground level, but, man, IndyCar, I could go do the Indy you 500. You do exactly right. the stuff that you like. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Let me go turn the stakes over. Cool. Yeah. Cool. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I'm back. So we got five minutes till the... Uh, five minutes till I got to go get our stakes. Well, what can't we talk about? <laughs> well, we can talk about anything. <laughs> what are we not allowed to what talk about? That's the real question. Yeah, whatever you guys so. want to. Well, that, it's funny. We were talking offline. Like, you know, there, there's obviously a ton going on with the Mazda program right now. and, and uh, But it seems like with now that you guys, you know, basically your hands have been forced to run gas-powered engines, it's kind of, in some ways, has it was it like a – I know it's cool to develop the, the – and do things that you simply shouldn't be doing in, a, in an engine that you're, that you're doing right. it on. So – is it is it kind of cool to or refreshing at all to be like okay now we can build an engine that's kind of meant to do what we're asking it to do? Yeah, I guess it's two different things from an engineering pure engineering technical standpoint. The diesels was a pretty cool project, something right. that nobody had done before, nobody was doing. And just to put this in perspective, so the only prototype in IMSA competition um, that's been running a diesel powered unit has been the, this Mazda, but it's a very small. G give me some of the specs on this engine. So it's a tiny little 2.2 liter twin turbo diesel, four cylinder. Right. And so it's a one turbo feeds the other turbo, which feeds the motor. So it's a compound turbo where we're f one into the other, into the, into the motor. Some of the numbers are just staggering. People who listen to this will probably think it's cool. We're running about 90 PSI of boost. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So think about your air compressor. <laughs> right. At yeah. 100 psi, we're forcing the motor. We're blowing on the motor that hard. 90 psi. That's awesome. Of boost. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. It's cranking. And you're asking it to go for these crazy endurance runs. Right. We're yeah. you know we're making. When we first started the program, 450 was a good target for LMP2 motors yeah. horsepower, and we were 370. Now we're 460. Yeah. But wow. the goalposts have moved. Yeah, it's yeah, quite a bit more to 540 or 550 now because the they had to give the P2 cars more power to keep up with the DP cars. Yeah. So they moved the goalposts further. So we're where we wanted to be, except it's, it's not good enough ahead. anymore. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Now I know P2 cars in Europe are still kind of in that same range. So is the Mazda as it sat, you know, current spec, 
this season, is it still in range with the P2s over there? Have they moved up a They've little bit as well? They've moved up to, okay. I mean, they're, they're more like 500. Okay. And here they're like 540, and we're still at that 450. Right, right, right. And so, so it was a great engineering project from a cool technical, how can we make a 2.2 liter little engine do something that's amazing? I mean, we're making 25% more horsepower per liter than the Audi LMP1 card mm -hmm. is making. Our suppliers like Molly and uh, who do the pistons and Bosch who do all of our electronics and our engine management stuff also do that same thing for Audi. And there we are pushing the technology further than Audi is that's allowing them to develop new parts and pieces that go in the Audi stuff. The Mazda Japan, the engineers there are amazed there with what we're doing. Because they're not involved in this. Not at all. Yeah. These engines come the only, and I should say not involved, they're very supportive of it and everything. Right, right, right. And obviously they fund it and they're, they're behind the whole thing, but not from an engineering standpoint. Yeah. We're doing the engineering. You know, David Haskell at SpeedSource is figuring this thing out along with Zach Legrone, who's our other engine engineer, and those guys are coming up with what to do. It's like a NASCAR shop. We're building our own engines. Yeah. I don't mean just, you know, assembling them. Right. We're five-axis machining pulleys and front covers and oil pans and everything we need. We're machining our own heads and doing our own valves and all of this stuff. And so the Japanese engineers in Japan are coming over and looking at what we're doing, and they're just they're learning a right. lot from us. Right. Which is so that's pretty awesome. cool. Yeah, that yeah. Well, and then you look at every other team you're competing against. Oh, do you have to go get the skate sticks? Yeah, I can. Yeah, I should get the sticks. Okay. Okay. Let's eat. Cool. <laughs> Hold that thought. All right. Can <laughs> <laughs> yeah. we looking back online? How do you like your steak done? Uh, medium rare. Medium rare. Okay, that's good. Yeah. Same. Okay. Yeah. Okay. I'm going to let it go a little bit longer then. Okay. Your call. Cool. All okay. right. Sweet. And you got to run? Just let us know. Okay. Cool. All right. So what you were saying? For you guys to be building motors in-house as well as chassis development, running a race team, the whole nine yards, that's yep. the only program doing that in IMSA in the prototype class because everyone else is buying engines or leasing engines from a, from a manufacturer, which is has a, a program much larger than the Mazda program. SpeedSource, although this is a big program, is a small team. In comparison to GM's engine program, HPD's engine program, the Ford engine exactly. program. So that's a monumental feat you guys are taking on to be able to produce numbers that rival Audi yeah. in terms of what they're able to make. And then a make. sandbox that's so different from what they're working with. Right. So. Yeah, I mean, it's really, you know, those guys, the other prototype teams get their, their engine program is the big shiny aluminum box shows up. They unbolt it, take it off. There's an engine and they put pull that out, they put it in their car, yeah. and when it's wore out, they put it back in the aluminum box, put a label on it, and send it away. That's their engine program. Ours is, we take it out of the car, we disassemble it, we inspect it, we figure out what went wrong, we build a new one, we put it together, we dyno it, we try this, we try that, we take it off the dyno, put it back in the car, and go again. And so, a lot of people, I think, they think the Mazda program is one of those or you get these engines from Japan and they're all got the latest, greatest. Sure. No, we're, it's the opposite. The, the engineers from Japan are learning from what we do. And that was a big part of this program is they wanted to enhance their diesel engine knowledge and they wanted to do it with racing. So they, they commissioned a company like SpeedSource to 
teach them about yeah. diesel engines at high performance levels. And I think that's something that a lot of people that are watching outside looking in don't realize, you know, and so it's very quick to, to start casting blame or, or not understanding what's really going on. And we'll, we'll come back to that a little bit later with social media and things. Yeah. Um, but what year did the Mazda, the current program start with this, with this chassis and everything? It's been two years now. We just finished the second year. Okay. So a little bit of like just what was really cool to me based on my racing career is that speed source was an st team like they came out of the continental tire series which is one of our sponsors on this program right and they were like the dominant st team with the rx8 chassis and that was around like 2003 four you know those those years 10 years later they're a factory prototype program in the highest class in north america sports car racing that's a really cool story in itself just to look at you know, they were with the manufacturer. They, they kept the partnership strong, developed a relationship, and now they have, you know, their own diesel engine program in their shop in Florida, which Mazda of Japan is flying engineers over to learn from. Yeah. That's very unique and not normal. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that's not a normal story you'd hear. Yeah, and that's what that's what's cool about Sylvain Tremblay and what he's, what he's done. And he never, he's never stopped... I, I was amazed, you know, maybe we'll talk about it. But anyway, when when Level 5 stopped, I was working for Level 5. When they stopped going professional racing, I had, I was looking for something to do. I couldn't do nothing. And I was just at the Laguna, or Mazda Raceway, we call it now. <laughs> I was, you should know this. I was yeah. there at that <laughs> race. And Sylvain said, hey, what are you doing now? That's what's going on? And I said, ah, I don't really know, you know. We're just gonna kind of hang out and look for something kind of new, interesting, different to do. Yeah. And I was like, "Oh, okay, cool. That's cool." Called me up on Monday, Sylvain Tremblay. Hmm. <laughs> goes, "You know that new, interesting, different?" He goes, "I got that if you really want that." So we talked, and that's how I ended up there. And right. I thought it was pretty interesting that a guy like him, who's won lots of championships and lots of yeah. races, and I mean, he knows how to do things the right way, right? Yeah. But he hired a guy like me to come in and help him understand how to do things better processes and procedures it's not just the engineering stuff I'm and that's that on. elevation from like a small team that kind of does you know what they do it's sort of a touring car or gt level right to now here's how we really have to interface for a development program and that's the thing i'm my official title is competition director but you know we have really smart engineers really smart data people uh, i don't run i don't run a car i'm not deciding what springs to put on it sure. i'm i'm advising and things like mm. that but i'm in charge of the processes, the procedures, the way we integrate our simulation program with our technical program, the way we uh, work on our pit stops, you know, all yeah. the competition aspects. And Sylvain has basically said, do that, figure, you know, tell me how we're doing it. Right. I mean, this is a guy who could easily say, no, 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 I, I know how to do pit stops. Look at all the championships right. I've won. Right. You Absolutely. You can't tell me how to do it better. Yeah. But he's been exactly the opposite, which I was That's awesome. really yeah. impressed with. And that's weird because I look at your house and it's like, you don't seem like a guy who seems big on organization. <laughs> Holy crap. <laughs> like, it's spotless. <laughs> um, like, we, you know, we, we read the description, you know, uh, uh, we, we'd heard, okay, it's like a metal building and all that. So we had no idea what we were walking into. And it's like, I'm surprised we're actually eating on a table and not the floor. Um, <laughs> Which, yeah, if we had to, would be okay we'll because be it's, yeah. it's spotless. Yeah. yeah. That's <laughs> ridiculous. That's you're That's never right. allowed in my uh, home, just yeah, so you know. Please. Like, uh, I will never return this favor <laughs> in Pasadena, California. Please don't look in my car when we leave. <laughs> okay. <laughs> That's my fault. Let me go get the steaks. I think they're actually done this time. Okay. Awesome. <laughs> 
And I love that, like, Jeff runs off to get, like, yeah, he's literally like, like, like oh, it's, it's, yeah. it's got to make sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so Bill Riley is going to cook for us as well in, in Charlotte. So, well, unless uh, we get, you know, somehow, you know, pulled from it by then. Yeah, we, he, he finds out how this he goes. Realizes, and he's yeah, like, exactly. We're not doing that. So at the my gauntlet house. is no. thrown. Now, knowing Bill and seeing his Traeger grill, um, he's going to blow it away. <laughs> All right, because yeah, what's it? Apparently, it's pretty elaborate what he's got over there. It's a, you know what a Traeger grill is? No. It's, okay, so it's this grill that has these pellets that feed it, and the pellets are like mesquite pellets, and it smokes it and cooks it at the same time. Jeez. Oh wow. It's pretty. Did he did he engineer it himself? No, no, no. He bought it. Okay. And okay. He's 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 pretty good. I, my hope is that he competes with you with like the elaborateness of how his house is built and designed and and uh, mm. plumbed. No, it'll be different. Okay. He does have a race car in his garage though. Okay. His chump car. Oh, he runs it. Okay. That's yeah. right. He does have a chump car. Okay. My my. Chump and you're running chump car, aren't you? Mine and Colin's chump car. Okay. We have a team. Okay. And his, it's all in Charlotte at his house. Oh, okay. Isn't it a Ford Probe with the roof cut off or something? It used to be. Okay. That's what Bill's is. Mm-hmm. So we had a Ford Probe, too, and we had a technical alliance with Bill. <laughs> 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 and But it kept on blowing up all the time. So all of our friends that were there racing with us, you well, know, that would come Mazda. and drive, never right. got to drive. Right. So we bought a Miata. Mazda <laughs> Miata. Imagine, you have a Mazda yeah, product. That's yeah. interesting. And so... That thing lasts forever, and we go and have a blast. Right. And like we just got back from Sebring, yeah, uh, no, week before Petite, I guess it was, and finished fourth out of ninety-eight cars with a Miata, which is wow. the lowest-powered car yeah. there. Right. So, yeah. I think the only kind of car that would compete would be a Honda product, right? Damn right. Yeah. Actually, <laughs> the Hondas are our biggest nemesis. Good. The Acuras. Good, as they should be. Man, it's terrible. <laughs> we might be in the market for a Honda. If we can't beat them, we might have to join them. Okay, we'll see what we can do for okay, you. Okay, good. Yeah. Yeah, got some pull. <laughs> we know a guy. So you joined the program in 14? Because they had a little bit of time without you. Yep. So level five, sh- we won. With level five, we won Daytona in the GTD class in 14. And... Virtually right after that, they shut down their pro racing right. department. Do we want to get into that? Do we want to ask yeah, about Daytona? Later. Not oh, the Daytona thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Sure. So what was your take on the way the, end, the ending of the 24-hour went? Where the controversy, sorry, the controversy, controversy, as we've been trying to say? <laughs> because we're trying to be fake English. Well, for us, it was, it was a big deal for us at Level 5 because we had come off winning four prototype championships in a row, four Sebrings in a row, four Petit Le Mans in a row, podiumed at Le Mans. We were a prototype team. And so we show up with a GTD car. And, you know, we we were hoping that we could do good with a GTD car, but we weren't a GTD, we weren't a GT team. But we applied the same procedures, frame processes, the same engineering, the same simulation, the same everything we had done. And we just said, who cares whether it's a prototype or a GT car? Turns out, we ended up, what we thought, winning the race in a pretty spectacular last lap um, where it was pretty hard racing. Everybody stayed on the racetrack. Our competitor tried to go around the outside in the kink, which, as you know, Ryan, you don't try to pass on the outside of the kink. <laughs> I will argue that 
I would do a lot of things I would not normally do for a watch from Daytona. Right. But right. And which it uh, is extremely it's damn near impossible to make that happen. And and it was Winklehawk in the car. If I was his guys and he didn't try to pass on the outside of the sure. kink, I'd say, come on, yeah. it's for the watch at Daytona. Go, go for it, yeah. And the thing that a lot of people don't understand, Spencer would, obviously, is that the Ferrari was not very good in the infield. And so at practice, we made an engineering decision and said, look, we're terrible in the infield. What a lot of people would do is say, well, let's get better. Let's optimize our car. Let's try to get more grip. Let's try to do this. Let's put more downforce in because we're bad. So we need to get better in the area we're bad at. We said, hold on. No, we know we can't get there from here. We could put all the downforce in the world and come up with the world's greatest setup and our shock settings and everything, and we might get a couple three-tenths. So we're really good in a straight line. Let's be unbelievably good in a straight really line. trim it out. So we trimmed it out. Right. We were six degrees nose up on our <laughs> rear wing. <laughs> if you see any pictures of our car in victory lane, right. you'll think it's the camera's warped or right. distorting it. I mean, it's crazy. So we were, we were literally looking at the segment times about 1.2 seconds faster on the two straightaways than the Audi. They were 1.2 seconds faster in the, the infield. infield. Right. So the lap times were the same, but we did them completely different. Right. Sure. And if push comes to shove on a last lap, a where do you want to be the fastest? Right. That's is the second half of the lap. Where do you want to be right. fastest? Yeah. yeah. So we, w- Winklehawk and, and Spencer and all those guys in that car knew that if they didn't lead coming onto the banking in turn six, it was all over. Sure. So on that last lap, Winklehawk, in the kink, he's running second. Mm-hmm. He has no choice. He's, he's got to he go. better get by, right. and he better try to gap us enough to beat us to the bus stop sure. and then hope upon hope that he can dodge enough to, to win the thing. So he did exactly the right thing. He went for it, and our guy, in my opinion, uh, Pierre Goody, held his line. Uh, it was Pierre I, Goody. I called it. Yeah, that's yep. what we yeah. thought. Yeah, yep. It was Pierre Goody. He gave enough room he didn't bump him off and you know you can look at all the replays and debate that or not but but they never touched the cars never touched and Pierre Goody never went to the exit until the Audi was all the way off whatever to me it's not like Pierre Goody took him out spun him out did something tremendously Mm -hmm. bad it was for the watch as you say on the last lap after 24 hours cars were less than a car length apart after 23 hours and 59 minutes, man, you will race hard. And I don't think either driver did anything wrong. I think they did exactly what they had to do to try to win that race. Pierre Goody knew that if he could lead him at turn six, it was all over. Yeah. And Winklehawk knew that if he didn't have the lead, it was all no over. No way is he getting by. So yeah. that was the crux point of the race, was that the kink more so than the last you know, the tri-oval right. or anything else. Sure. Right. That race was decided right there. Right. And so we came across, we won the race, we were all happy. We thought, man, that was like the, f- the very first what an ending. Tudor race. Yeah. Uh, yeah. How could you have a better ending to for the publicity? You know, like, look here, we'd start this new series and look at the racing the fans <laughs> get. Yeah. Something right. like that is pretty incredible. So we f- finish the race, we win, and literally 30 seconds later, where we see that, that we got a penalty that we didn't win for uh, avoidable contact. Yeah. 
And so we play the replay back on our screen in the stand, and there is no contact. We say, oh, how can you have avoidable contact if we didn't have contact? Right. Read through the rules, and the rules did at that time state that you don't actually have to have contact right. to be penalized for avoidable contact. Right. Well, now it gets really confusing to all of us. And so we you know, look at the rules, and it's pretty open-ended that if we didn't give enough racing room, you can get penalized for avoidable contact. So who's to judge that? Well, the guys in the tower judged that, and that was their call. And there wasn't a whole lot we could do about it. We were like, well, okay, you know, that's a call, and, you know, we can't, we can say, look, guys, there was no contact. Right. And they said, yep, we see that. There was no contact. We agree. Still a penalty. You didn't give them enough room. Well, how much room do you have to give them? You know, we didn't bump him off. We tried to show that he came out of the corner with a car width on the exit that if Winklehawk wouldn't have carried so much speed, he wouldn't have fallen off the track. He could have driven right around with them together. But you can't, you can't really debate that. That's their call. That's a judgment call. And they're the officials. And we right. said, okay. So we started packing up. And then Scott Tucker got on his airplane. He flew home, second at Daytona. The sad thing for me personally was that Colin won Daytona. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So I'm here with IMSA trying to debate this whole thing for an hour and a half while Colin's in Victory Lane with his first Daytona wow. 74 right. win celebrating. Yeah. And yeah. I couldn't go there and see any of that, yeah, right. which is kind of kind of too bad. And to back up a little bit, and then I'll get back to the final thing, my dad had always wanted to win Daytona. That was his mm. goal. He's the one who got a bunch of investors together and did the Camel Light car with a Ferrari-powered Argo. And we took it to Daytona, and he'd always... Daytona was his kind of dream to win. And we never... We raced it twice. It was all my dad and his investor guys could afford. They were just regular guys. Yeah. And it never happened. So then to be able to so have... have like a family victory. When we both win our first Daytona 24 hours at yeah. the same time would have been pretty cool for yeah. a lot of other reasons. Yeah. But anyway, so we're arguing with IMSA. IMSA says, no, okay, we're done, we're packing up. And suddenly we get this message from IMSA, don't leave. Like, okay, we won't leave. We sat there for f virtually four hours after the race ended. Ugh. IMSA came back and said that it was me and um, David Stone, who's the team manager for Level 5, and Ken Swan, who was the crew chief of level five the three of us and all of our drivers just sitting there waiting 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 yeah. waiting guys were packing up they came back imsa came back and said we're declaring you the winner we're like awesome <laughs> great <laughs> they went and brought us the trophy we went back into victory lane at about 7 30 8 o'clock that night took the pictures with just us and we won so i felt you know it's interesting what you said with Spencer. I called Spencer day after, two days yep. after, because I had worked with Spencer before. I'd yep. run him at mm -hmm. PRG, yep. and yep. Yep. I have a lot of respect and time for Spencer. He's a great guy, good driver, fair, honest guy. You know, the the race strategist over there was Thomas Blom. Yep. I've known Thomas a long time. really highly respect him as a strategist. We were going head-to-head -head on strategy. Right. I knew exactly what he was going to do. <coughs> he knew what I was going to do. So it was this big chess match for the last four or five hours between Thomas and me on when we were going to pit, when which drivers we were going to pit in, put yeah. in. I was trying to get my best driver against their weaker one, and mm -hmm. he was trying to do the same, and it was fantastic. Really good, 
hard racing. That's what racing should be, right? Yeah. So I talked to those guys about that, and you know, of course Spencer thought they should have won, and I thought we should have won, but we, you know, we uh, accepted it. The, the bad thing was, is that those guys had to give. I mean, literally, um, Scott Elkins had to walk down to the Audi guys. Yeah. Get the trophy out of their trailer. Bring it back to Victory Lane Ugh. and give it to us. Yeah. Right. And that's just not. <laughs> yeah, and there's two I sets of watches out no there. Right? Yeah, even if you're rightfully the guy to win, yeah, that's just never going to. Yeah, terrible. There's no happened. way that you're like, yeah. good. <coughs> you yeah, know? Exactly. Yeah, it's just not that and way. And there's two sets of watches out, I believe, now, because I believe the uh, Flying Lizard guys, you know, uh, never <laughs> gave them back. And, and two, I believe the Level 5 guys didn't even, they, they wouldn't want somebody's old Yeah, watch, what are you right? going to take the yeah. watch off someone else's wrist? Right. Like, no way. So it was unfortunate in a word for everybody because if the world believes that level five should have won that race then we didn't get the celebration that we should have got right if they believe that the audi guys should have won that race then they got screwed because it was taken away from them sure it you know i'm not gonna lie i would rather win four hours later than never win it yeah but it was still really unfortunate for everybody involved. I mean, Scott Tucker was in Kansas. Yeah, he's already said, you just won Daytona. It's yeah. like, you're kidding. <laughs> I just flew home. Right. <laughs> <laughs> the other day, this came to my attention, the Mazda announcement about you guys going to the uh, gasoline engines, no more diesel. Mm -hmm. And a guy on, I think, Molson Mike's page <laughs> on Facebook, uh, Sam O'Rourke, Basically said that Jeff Braun and the program is out of their el out of their depth, which right. I don't know anybody. Yeah, who would ever anybody like, within yeah, the paddock is ever going to say that Jeff Braun doesn't know what he's doing. Yeah, it's know, time to get rid of that guy. Well, yeah, you're being kind, but no, no, there are a lot of yeah, there are a lot of people that would go. I think anybody who knows me up. knows I'm not kind to people I don't like. But uh, <laughs> yeah, but um, I wanted to bring up the fact that you called the guy out in the nicest way possible. Yeah. But basically said, hey, sorry, your exact quote is, sorry we're out of our depth with the prototype in your eyes, but we've been working hard and testing the new engine like crazy. If you're not too disappointed, keep watching and see if the 25-plus people that work 10 to 12 hours every day on this program can rise out of the depth and figure out how to run a prototype. Thanks for being so interested in our program. Yeah. Mic drop. That is yeah. like the best backhanded response, you know, <laughs> like, thanks for being interested. You're an idiot. Right. And thanks again for watching. Right. <laughs> yeah. 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 I mean, I couldn't. Uh, there's a lot of people who are big Mazda fans. Yeah. Obviously, like they say, more Mazdas are raced <coughs> every weekend than yep, any other right. car. And so there's a lot of Mazda fans. And they're with this prototype program, I think a lot of people were excited about, oh, man, we're going to go prototype racing, and this is going to be cool. And to be really honest, our results suck. Yeah. And so, and there's nobody, we're not, debating that and we're not trying to put a spin on it we were last and second to last at every race yeah and we talked about it earlier it's a cool development program engineering wise all of uh, all of the geek engineers at, at speed source thought it was awesome the improvements we made are unheard of and we yeah. did things that that we're all really proud of engineering wise the rest of the world didn't see it at all we're still seventh and eighth yeah that's all yeah and that's all they see sure which is when it gets right down to racing, that's all that matters. So us as racers don't like it. Us as engineers like it for a little bit until we're still seventh and eighth. Then we still don't like it. Yeah. So, 
having the gas program gives us a chance now. It's not going to guarantee that we're going to win races or anything, but we we aren't we don't go into every weekend going, man, if we do the most incredible job we could ever imagine, we're going to be 7th and 8th. That's the right. way it's been this year. Sure. And we've done some incredible jobs this year. Well, we're still 7th and 8th. Right. You know, and maybe we could beat all the PC cars. Ooh, yeah, that would be great. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that's no fun. Right, no, I ain't no yeah, kidding. Yeah, that's no fun. Yeah. So we're, the gas thing has re-energized everybody. And the thing that I think is really impressive about Speed Source and all the guys there is that they, they never, it would be easy for them to say, well, it doesn't matter if we're two seconds slower on our pit stops. Why do we need to practice it? We're going to be seventh and eighth no matter yeah. whether we do 20-second pit stops or 25-second pit stops. But no, everybody listened and understood when I said, there's going to be a time, guys, when the difference between a 20 and a 22-second pit stop is going to be the difference between winning and losing. Let's work all the kinks out now where nobody's going to notice it. So if we mess up, people are going to still be 7th and 8th, and they won't go, wow, they messed up their pit stop, and it cost them the race. It's not going to matter now. Let's get all those kinks out now so that when we get the right equipment, because we knew it was coming eventually, either the diesel was going to get where it needed to be or Mazda was going to say, okay, that worked for what we needed it to work, but now here's with the new set of rules, a new engine go after that. One of those two things were going to happen. And then we better be ready. And we can't have good equipment and fall down because our procedures aren't good, our lifing system isn't good, our simulation isn't good, our pit stops aren't good. We've got this great car that's fast, but we can't do the rest of it. We can't spend a year with the right equipment developing those processes. Yeah. We spent last year developing those processes. So now hopefully we get the right car and our processes and our systems are good enough to compete at the top level. We'll right. see, but that's that's kind of the approach we took. Kind of going back to social media, um, you know, obviously there's a, the public is, if they choose to be, can be critical of the Mazda program, but, you know, in your career, you have been with a few teams that, that have had some public criticism for reasons outside of the performance of the race. You know, Scott Tucker's uh, business practices, some would question. Mm-hmm. Uh, 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 Andy Evans and his kind of role in sports cars in the mid-90s and whatnot oh. um, has received a lot of criticism from people. But you've actually always done a very good job of getting in front of that when you needed to. Um, and, and in that very Jeff Braun classy way, say, hey, I, whatever you think of that, this is a good team and he's always taking care of us, whether it's Scott Tucker or whoever. Um, where did that come from, I guess, is, is the question I would ask. Yeah, because you don't have to say anything. Yeah, you know, it really wouldn't matter if a fan thought, you know, that the Mazda team stinks. Yeah, the thing, the thing like that, that one in particular, is just I know how hard our truck driver works. I know how hard our composite guy works. Yeah. I know how hard the young engineers we got in Coral Springs are working every day, and the stuff that they're doing, and the job list that I give them of things that they're doing, they just keep knocking it out. Right. I know how hard all those guys are working. And when somebody says that they're out of their depth, it kind of makes me angry for them because they're not out of their depth. Right. They're learning, they're getting better, but they're working hard. And that kind of frustrates me that somebody would, would think that. If that guy <coughs> would have said, boy, the Mazdas always finish seventh and eighth and they're very slow, I would have said, 
absolutely right. Yeah. That's and boy, there's 25 people working hard to prevent that, but we haven't got it right yet. And but keep watching. I think we will. I mean, he's right. Yeah. But to say that we can't run a prototype or out of our depth sure. or something like that, that's just not fair to the guys who are working so hard. You know, there's mechanics work that hard and they never get to go to the podium or even if they don't go to the podium, they never get to be back under the tent when their drivers walk back with a podium bottle and yeah. give them a drink of champagne yeah. and that never happens. And they go into the weekend knowing that that will, it will be impossible to happen. I mean, race mechanics are the best guys in the world as far as I'm concerned and they deserve some credit. And when somebody says something like that, it just kind of burns me. I'd love to hear some Andy Evans stories because for me, my childhood going to the racetrack with my dad um, was basically the WSC world sports car, professional sports car racing era for me. I mean, I grew up, I was at the Daytona 24 hour 1984 when I was a month old and my dad was running a GTP car there, but I didn't really know what was going on. Right. And come early nineties, that's when I really, my love for the sport blossomed. And I remember the Andy Evans, Scandia Ferrari, out there against the Jean Piero Moretti Ferrari, the Dyson Rileys, yep. you know, and just like all the players in the sport at the time. And you were obviously right in the middle of that, you know. Yep. Was that an era that you look back at now and think that was some pretty cool stuff? Yes, yes. And I, th <coughs> I, I, I'm not one of these guys that thinks, you know, that those were the, the good old days. My grandfather one time told me, because I said, oh, man, Grandpa, that must have been the good old days. He goes, nope, those were just the old days. <laughs> <laughs> and he said they were good at the time, but those are the old days, and now we're doing new stuff. Sure. And that's kind of the way I look at it. But those were some great times for me. Right. I mean, for seven years, seven years, I was the head of the technical side of Team Scandia Racing, yeah. which was Andy Evans' team. And the 333 specifically, those were, f that was a great car. We had really good drivers. I got to, again, we're talking about the mechanics and the people involved, and that's what this sport's really all Absolutely. about anyway. The yeah. cars are cool, but it's the people that you really remember. You know, got to work with people like Michele Abaredo and Fermin Velez and Mauro Baldi and, and you know, uh, Eric Vanderpoel and... I just saw Eric Vanderpoel at the World Challenge finale. Mm -hmm. He came walking in next to me. I was getting my friend to pass, just and he comes out. in. And he comes in to get a credential, and I haven't seen that guy in a decade. He's driver managing people now. Okay, yep. yeah. So he's sense. got some guys in the U.S. Yeah, I turned. And I was managing. like, and I said out loud, "I go, that's Eric Vanderpoel," and he must have heard me. And he looked at me. He's like, "Hi." <laughs> <laughs> I was like, "Hey, <laughs> sorry, <laughs> I'm just gonna leave," and I yeah. just walked out. <laughs> yeah. He's like, "Some idiot recognized me." Yeah, yeah. I yeah. use a cool guy. Uh, short, uh, quick story. There is. Colin was 14 racing Formula Renaults here, and Eric had a Formula Renault team that he was associated with in Belgium. And he said, hey, Colin, how would Colin like to come and race in Belgium? I said, yeah, awesome. <laughs> and he goes, well, I got a guy here who wants to race in the United States. So we did a, uh, what are those, like uh, student exchange, exchange kind of things? Student, yeah. So his dad, the Belgian dad, paid for Colin to come and race on with okay. his team, and I paid for the Belgian kid to come and race here. So Colin and him were teammates in America and in Belgium. It was actually, um, it was actually Dijon, France, okay, is where, yeah, the, cool. where we yeah, yeah. did the race. So Colin is a 14-year-old. They made a FIA made a 
I'm not sure. Maybe they just lied and said he was 16. But <laughs> anyway, he was only 14, and it's he did a now. race in, in Dijon. Right. So anyway, that was Eric set that thing up. Yeah, that's very cool. But I got to go work with those kind of guys on that 333 program. Andy, a lot of people didn't like Andy Evans. A and all I can say is all I can judge a person on is how he treats me. Right. Yeah. And did I see other people that were upset with Andy Evans? Yes, but I don't know the details. It's sure. always two sides of a story. Right. And I don't really want to know, get involved in the details. If a person treats me unfairly or disrespectful, then I have a problem. Right. Andy Evans, for seven years I worked for him. He never did that. He paid me on time, in full, never a question. He gave me the keys to his technical operation for seven years and said, whatever you think is best, you do. If we need to test 10 times a year, great. If we only need to test once and spend that money someplace else, do that. You decide, you tell me. And so for an engineer, technical guy, that's like as good as it gets. Sure. It's also really, really scary because <laughs> there's- <laughs> It's on you. There's yeah. no excuses. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You can't say, well, you know, Andy, if you would have given us a better tire budget and we could have had an extra set of yeah. weekend, we might have won. Because he would be like, no, no, you, as many tires as you need. Yeah. Just whatever you need. As long as we're going. As long as we're winning. Yeah. yeah. It's like, oh, man. Yeah. So now if you don't <laughs> it's win. It's on you. It's like, yeah. well, Jeff, what did you need and why aren't we winning? Right. Because I've given you everything <laughs> you've asked for. <laughs> exactly. Sure. Yeah. So, so for me, he is still one of the best. I mean, a lot of listeners are going to go, this guy is crazy for saying this. But you're, he's You're giving us way too much credit that we'll have a lot of listeners. Okay. Yeah. Who <laughs> are like, I want to know about 1995 IMSA. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so 1995 yeah, yeah. IMSA, we won the championship. We yeah. won Sebring and we won the championship with Fermin and we beat, I'm proud of that because we beat some really good guys. Yeah, no you kidding. don't beat Dwayne Taylor yeah. at his, in his prime and the Momo guys. Yeah. And... The Dyson, know, guys. the Dyson guys yeah. and yeah. you know you don't beat James Weaver and Andy Wallace in their prime yeah. Yeah. yeah if you can do that you've done something special right so Fermin Velez became a really good friend spent a lot of time with him we won the championship in really cool Ferrari race cars yeah. and you know that was that was fun that was really good you know this is something I always wonder about and I th and I th think you'd be a perfect person to answer this it seemed a little bit easier then to get your hands on a top-level car capable of winning overall. The Riley and Scott was available. The 333SP was available. And those were kind of like the two main cars of that era. You yep. could get a Carrage and some other things. But those were like the the two cars over here at least. Yep. And I honestly don't have a clue what those cars cost back then in comparison to what like a DP or a P2 car costs now. Um, yeah. And I've often said that I think P1 racing, like big P1 racing, even when it was over here, wasn't very successful because you couldn't buy an R8. Right. You know, like Champion could because they had a dealership. You right. know, they had to use that. But, like, I couldn't just go buy an R8 for a really long time. And that was really the only option for that class. Right Right now I can't go buy a, a, a Porsche 919. I can't buy an Audi R20,000, whatever they yeah, right. You know, and so that class is really not a, a, a reality for the everyman because you can't buy the car. But when, like in another car, perfect example, the 962, mm -hmm. anybody could buy one of those and race against the factory back then. And so I almost wonder if it's because there's no clear choice on what the cars to have are these days. You know, like the Ligier is a great P2 car, but it hasn't still won a race over here. DPs are obviously pretty strong, but which one is the absolute right one to have? Right. Um, 
but I guess the big question is like, what do you remember what those cars mm -hmm. cost? So the Ferrari was cool because everybody said at the time it's a million dollars. Okay. People went, whoa! Remember, this is yeah, this is ninety four, ninety five, a million dollars. Well, and Ferrari priced it that way because they wanted it to cost a million dollars. Right. But what you got for a million dollars was the car, complete, running, ready to go, a spare gearbox, and a season worth of engine rebuilds. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's pricey right there. And some spares. Yeah. So you got more than just right. the car wasn't a million dollars. Right. But to buy, it, but you had to buy that whole thing because they weren't going to sell you just a but car. But it wasn't like the, the, Porsche, the Porsche or the Audi setup you would see today where they bring in their own trailer and you get an engineer that comes with it. Or no, no, no. You, yeah. you literally bought the car. Yeah. Boom. Good there luck. it is. Yep. And there was instructions in Italian. Maybe a setup sheet. I don't even. I don't know. Sure. Yeah. And that was it. And I think the analogy is <coughs> today, the P2 class or the American WeatherTech Series prototype class is equivalent to the top class we had then. P1 racing is not is is another level above that right Th it didn't exist in those days right. that that level of racing in sports cars didn't exist that was yeah. formula one in those days yeah so now i look at lmp1 racing as formula one sports cars sure yeah and, sure, th and that didn't in the 90s when we were racing when there was you know 962s and 333s and mark three Rileys and stuff there was not a level above that that was right. formula one type sports car racing. right so so in today's standards you can still buy a car mm -hmm. and go win overall races right in p2 it p1's right. a whole nother sure, sure, something sure. else so the, the unfortunate thing is and i think this is has to do more with technology than anything else it's the good and bad side of technology is you look at all the p2 cars the current p2 cars and unless you're really into the sport it's hard to tell the difference between an orica and a Ligier, yeah. and a even a Lola, yeah. even the old Lola. Yeah. It's hard to tell. I mean, yeah, okay, uh, a real diehard fan can tell, but if you watch on TV and you take most of the fans that are at the racetrack, they're really not going to be able to tell mm -hmm. which cars are what. And it's not, and that's unfortunate. You could tell the difference between a 333 and a Mark III Riley. Yeah. You could hear the difference. Yeah. One oh, yeah. had a Ford and one had this high-revving 12-cylinder Ferrari in it, and, you know, you could a 962 did not look like a 333 yeah and right. so that was pretty cool but i think what's happened is the technology's got so good specifically the aero and the cfd has gotten so good that there is ultimately only one right answer sure they all come up with the same design sort of so to speak right and it's not there is no styling cues and stylists anymore <laughs> yeah. because the CFD says no your dive plane has to be this big positioned here at this angle so and everybody's CFD program comes up with the same answer so everybody's dive plane looks the same right and so the cars look the same because that's the fastest now is that because the rules are so small for what you can do like if it was a wider set of rules then more options might become available for things you could try I think the ultimate thing there is to look at the P1 cars their rules are more open. Sure. They have a big box. You yeah. can be this tall, this wide, and this long. Mm -hmm. But their rules are a little bit more open, and they look pretty much the same. Yeah, other than the Nissan. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. The Nissan, right. Yeah. right. But, but, so, but the good ones. The tools have become so good. 
You've run in the three different business models as an engineer. There's OEM programs. There's you know private individual who just has fun money and he wants to go spend it. And then there's customer based teams who are trying to you know somehow make a living at this. You know you and I work together on a customer team. Mm -hmm. um, didn't seem like you had a good time. Um, yeah, not making you make any statements. Just right. saying. I don't think you had a good time. Right. Neither of us did. Um, <laughs> and uh, if you had to choose, which which path would you go? Wow. If I had to choose. Um, I think there's pluses. This is it's not the so answer not you want. So not an answer. Okay. If I had to choose, <laughs> if I had to choose, I would go with the passionate gentleman businessman racer. Yeah. And the reason is, is because they're passionate yeah. and they're doing it. They're, by definition, they're spending their own hard-earned money that they could spend on a country house or a yacht or an airplane or <laughs> golfing or something else. Nobody's forcing them to do it, but they're choosing to spend hundreds of thousands of dollars or millions of dollars because they love racing. Right. And how how could it be bad to be associated with a person that loves racing so much that they'll spend millions of dollars on it? That they'll never get back. Right, that they'll never get yeah. back and don't expect to get it just back. Just fun. They yeah. just want to have fun. And their definition of fun, I've worked with a lot of those guys, Right, varies. Some of them is, I'm only having fun if I'm winning. Right. Some of them has, I'm only having fun if I'm driving. Right. Yep. That was Scott Tucker. Yeah. yeah. He wouldn't run a race team unless he was driving it. Right, right. Which I get completely. I respect that. Yeah. Some of them are the I only want to win guys. Some of them transition. Andy Evans was a very good gentleman driver. Right. And transitioned from that to running Indy cars. And we qualified seven cars for the Indy 500. And one of them wasn't his. Right, right. He didn't drive it. But he, he wanted to do that. So you can transition from that. But those guys are, the passion is there. And that's pretty cool to be involved in. So if I had to pick one, that's what I would do. Yeah. Well, it seems like your best stories seem to come from that. You know, you're, that's usually where you're given the most freedom to do what you feel you think is best because you're just given that autonomy that a, a guy looking after his bottom line simply can't. Right. And, and a, a corporate board, you know, usually has their own provisions. Right. That's that's the thing about the factory side is that, yeah. you know, especially for a guy like you that wants to do some sort of, some, you know, some sort of engineering change could come against well that's not what our streetcar has so we can't do that or yeah whatever but at least with a guy like scott tucker he's hiring you because of who you are he wants you to show him the way right you know so that's probably i can see that being for an engineering standpoint for sure there there are the customer program is pretty cool because i have a huge respect for people that can run a pr customer program yeah the bobby oracles the mike shanks of the world those guys are Kevin Doran, you know, yeah. the list is there. Yeah. Those guys who can do that and make a living doing that is, I would never, oh, I wouldn't yeah. be smart enough in my wildest dreams to be able to do that. And I have huge respect yeah. for those guys that can do it and run up front and still win. Right. I mean, this year, I last three races of the year, I worked at Core. Right. Kind of on loan from, from Mazda as we were winding down the, the diesel program to kind of help their LMPC program right. and ran against Bobby Orgel. Yeah. And and it's impressive what they do. I'm happy, you know, that if you can beat Bobby Orgel, you beat yeah. good guys. Yeah. And, and and I mean actually Bobby very specifically, 
it's I believe it's very hard to run a customer based team and maintain a good reputation. Not because you're necessarily a bad person or you're running a bad business, but because you deal with so many green people that they're going to walk away bad mouthing you because they simply don't understand the process right, right. of of, a, of how customer teams work. Right. But I have literally never met anybody who said a bad word about him. No. And it's incredible that a customer team can have that good of a reputation. Right. So. Guys, I mean, and th I have great respect for those guys, and I've worked on those programs, and I understand yeah. when I worked for Ian Willis at AIM. Hmm. Same kind of same kind of guy. When he says, you know, I ran his DP car one Daytona, and he's like, okay, well, I, we dinged a splitter in practice or something like that. And I said, okay, well, let's put the spare one on. And he comes to me, he goes. He said, our spare splitter is like 12 pounds heavier. It's been repaired so much. And yeah. he said, I feel really bad if it's like 12 pounds. And I know you're going to hate that. And I'm like, hey, <laughs> I understand. <laughs> right. I wish it wasn't 12 pounds heavier. Right. But let's put it on. Right. And, and you know, we got a little bit of ballast. I'll move that here. And yeah. we'll, These or we'll take the, the ballast box. out or right. we'll do whatever. And I get that. Yeah. You know, when a guy says, F having run Colin and having this pay for all budget. of that yeah, right. and understanding the budget and knowing that when we have to when he spins his formula reno and flat spots the tires it's like hmm uh we have a day and a half more to go and those new tires you were going to get on sunday you're getting them today and you're going to have to run those same make tires on sunday yeah. to make it work because we can't afford it and i will still to this day get people looking at me strange when you know there'll be 15 minutes left in a in a IMSA tutor session and I'm like man I'd really like to put new tires on it and I'll say over the intercom or something well let's just do that fuel run out instead of putting new tires on it and let's save the 2500 bucks yeah, right. people like I'm like <laughs> well, let's not just waste yeah they're gonna do six yeah. minutes speed sources uh, money yeah, or, yeah, right. or John Bennett's money let's not just waste right. it let's the, be smart here yeah. I'm the same way yeah. <laughs> I do I have this issue with coaching all the time where I'll have guys that I'm thank you where I'll have guys that are you know only going to do another half an hour. Like I, perfect example, I was just at Coda last weekend right after the Petite on Saturday or Friday night I flew to Coda and I'm coaching a guy and uh, a bunch of good guys in a series didn't show up for that race. So he's like got the fast lap of the weekend by like a half second mm -hmm. over a second. And then on Sunday that guy didn't even show up. Mm -hmm. So I'm like, you're two seconds faster in the field. You're running on the same crap you ran yesterday and that's just it. And he was like, oh man. I'm like, I'm saving you 2,500 bucks. You're still going to win. Right. <laughs> you know what I right. mean? And sure enough, he wins by 30 seconds. It's like, nice. you know, he's like, yeah, you're probably right. Mm -hmm. like, now you got to freeze the tires, you know. Um, so we need to switch gears into our regular program. Well, th this, is, this was. We're, we're on the regular program. No, our question. Oh, that. We haven't done that yet. Oh, my And I gosh. know that's going to, right. Yeah. Oh, the <laughs> question for the next person. In. Well, no, well, that first has to be passed on to you. Oh, right. Oh, boy. And yeah. then we're really sorry. Um, about the connotation because it comes from Bo Barfield. Um, yeah. And it's not thing. necessarily about racing. It kind of is. And he knew it was going to be for me. Yes. 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 Bo. Yeah. So he doesn't, He. I don't know that he knows I was typing all this stuff down when he was asking the question, but he just went on like a Jeff Brown love fest for a second. Yeah. And he yeah. said, Jeff is one of the most professional guys in the paddock. He can give feedback and he could have had a lot of emotion, but he doesn't. Maybe it's because he's an engineer. <laughs> Fair. Okay. That's yeah. yeah, yeah. Bo's question. Do the guys that you ride motorcycles with during your track days, do they know any of the abilities that you possess as a racing engineer with four wheels? No. No, really? Nope. Don't talk about just, it. Do they even know like, what you do? Nope. 
Interesting. Nope, you're just Jeff. The I'm guy just with the a bike. guy with uh, in the intermediate level class doing track days, trying yeah. not to fall down and. And you're a big bike guy, though. I mean, I, every it seems like every other Facebook post I've ever seen of you is about some endurance thing you're running or. Yeah, I love the the track day thing's really fun. Yeah. Um. I, I like doing it. I'm not. You know, like I say, I'm an intermediate level guy, so right. I'm not, and that's intermediate track day guy. That doesn't yeah. mean I, I could, uh, I wouldn't even probably reach novice. Ma yeah, maybe I could race at the beginner novice class. I could maybe race that. <laughs> you know, I'm dragging my knee and I'm doing all that kind of yeah, stuff, yeah. but I'm not. So anyway, uh, but I like doing it. It's a lot of fun because totally. it takes skill and concentration and all that kind of stuff. So it's, it's fun, but none of those guys. No, I'm just another guy on that 600 Ninja out there, you know. So that he showed us the bike that he has. Yeah, already go. Yeah, yeah, we've been trying to do that and never have have not got together to do that yet. So. Yeah, he's all in. That that was what he wanted to talk about when we were telling him we were coming to see you. Next. Oh, that's so cool. Yeah, that's cool. He seemed pretty excited about it. That's so we were right. We figured you were Houston, Austin, and I figured I bet they're gonna go talk to Bo. Yep, that was awesome. So along that theme, our next guest is the Speed Freaks. In Phoenix, yep. they have a radio show. I know they those do. guys. I was on that a few, probably more years than I can remember. Who'd you talk to? It was Gladys, right? Cra it's Crash Gladys. Crash Gladys. Yep. And I can't remember the two guys. Lug, uh, Lug nuts. Lug yeah, nuts. yeah. Talk to him. And then and Sarge. 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 Yeah, Kenny I talked Sarge. to all, all three of those guys. Yeah. yeah. They they'll probably they might remember me. I don't know. We're not going to preface it. We're not going to yeah, say. We're just it. Like, so Jeff Brown wanted to know. Yeah. See if they know. Like, uh, and that's um. on them if they don't know. Okay. So <laughs> this <laughs> is, uh, I thought about that because you gave me a pre, you okay. know, to yeah. think about that good, question. Good, good. This, this would be the question that I would. So if they, and I guess they may be three answers. Sure. It's three we, d we don't know who all, I think it's just two. We're just going to show up. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> we're showing up and then we ask. Whoever's them, there. Them, yeah. Right. If they were granted one wish by the racing genie hmm. and they could change racing in any way, but only one wish, and that's the key. They can't have, they can't change six things. Yep. They can only change one thing in, ra in worldwide racing. What would it be? I like that. Yeah, that's a good one. That's good. What do you think they're gonna say? <laughs> I don't. I don't. I haven't met them yet. <laughs> I don't want to start saying anything out of school. <laughs> I because that's. I think that's. You would get a lot of different answers from a lot yeah. of different people. Uh, so I guess. Well, what what would your answer be, Jeff Brown? For me, it's easy. And it would apply to almost every form of motorsport. I think I know what it is, but go on. Okay. If I was the racing, if I got that one wish and I could change anything, it would be I would cut downforce on all race cars by at least 50%, preferably 70%. Wow. All race cars. Yeah. That would be, to me, that would be the single biggest thing that would make racing more fun for the participants, the drivers, and the fans. Absolutely. Everybody would love it. Yeah, for sure. You would get to see drivers drive. We'd get to see guys like Ryan wheeling that thing sideways, yep. <laughs> nervous under the brakes, yep. you know, slide it in. You, fans would get to see 
drivers drive again. Engineers would get to work on mechanical grip again. Um, drivers would be able to, there would be a wider spread in driver ability where good drivers versus not as good drivers would stand out more. Right. And they would be bigger gaps. Passing would be better. Racing would be closer. I, I don't see any, that's one of those things where you could pick a thing like, well, I think they should do away with all BOP. <laughs> oh, there's too much ramifications on that. Yeah. <laughs> or I think they should do away with all turbo engines or something like that. To me, that one thing, cut down force by at least 50%, yeah. 70% would be better, and go racing. Yeah. And still use all the cool technology we have. Use traction control and ABS and in whatever classes that yeah. applies to sure. that where that's good. You know, use your electronics control, use your hybrid systems, use all of that cool stuff. I, I don't propose that we go back to the 70s and run, you know, 70-era sports cars because they had less downforce. No. Do what we do now, just cut the downforce. Right. So we'd normally close this with our sign-off when we're at a restaurant. Oh, Continental's got the check. But there's not a check, so. Oh, we can just, uh, I'll have Diane fill out a invoice and send it to Sherry Herman. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> Done. We're good here. All right. I'm finished. An evening in the home of Jeff Brown. I, uh, <laughs> I I could listen to that guy talk all day. I got to say, I think both Ryan and I felt pretty privileged to be in that place because a lot of people have wondered what it was like from the inside. So uh, if you listen closely, there was one thing you did not hear about. We talked about this at the beginning is you didn't hear any stories about uh, Level 5 Motorsports, which was you know, a pretty good chunk of the, uh, the recent years in Jeff's uh, career. And that's because it's its own episode. If you love to hear about race car engineering or if you like exercises and absurdity, then the next episode is absolutely the one to listen to. But we're going to play this episode out in what I believe is the only acceptable band to introduce you to since we're in West Texas. It's a, a good friend of mine, Paul Lax, and his band Double Not Spy Car. That's Double Not Spy Car. Double N-A-U-G-H-T Spy Car. Also available on iTunes. This is all instrumental. You're not going to hear any lyrics, but if we're in West Texas, it's the only music you should be able to hear in your head. Enjoy.